This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, but as he spoke to Moses, as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were angered and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, if you're new here, we absolutely love God's Word. In fact, we love it so much, we do verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are in the middle of the book of Acts. And right now, we're, we're in the middle of chapter 7, Stephen's sermon, the longest recorded sermon uh, in the Bible, and that's where we're at today. We're going to be looking at verse 37 through verse 60, and just like I said last week, again, I'm doing it a little different because I'm kind of flying over this chapter because a lot of the theological points that Stephen's going to hit on we're going to be able to come back to all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so uh, I want to talk about a, a graduate uh, who graduated high school in 1904. I've talked about him before. His name was William Borden, and in 1904, he graduated from a Chicago high school. Uh, he was an heir to his family's fortune. He was already wealthy when he graduated. His high school graduation present, William got to... Uh, a trip around the world. His parents bought him this trip. He was only 16 at the time he graduated. Very, very bright young man. But his parents wanted to, to buy him a trip all over the world. And I think the hope of this, because he kind of had this heart for missions and the hope, I think that the parents were kind of hoping at least that he would, he would maybe after seeing the world come back and say, well, missions isn't for me. So he, uh, he traveled through Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and he felt this growing burden <laughs> For the world's hurting people. So it had the opposite effect of making him not want to do missions. It actually really made him want to do it. And that led him to write home about his desire to be a missionary. 
one friend of his expressed disbelief that Bill was, Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. So this was, this was something that uh, his friends didn't understand. And uh, there's, there's this story often associated with William Borden that says that in response to this, William wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. So he was young and he was wealthy when he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905, and it didn't take long for Borden's classmates to notice that there was something really special about this guy, and it wasn't that he had a lot of money. One of them wrote this about William Borden. He said, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We, we who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was as solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration to the Lord. During his college years, he made this entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were, were seeing in him. And the entry said simply, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. William Borden's first disappointment at Yale uh, came when the university president spoke in a special service and he spoke about the students' need of having a fixed purpose. After that speech, William wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. He surveyed the Yale faculty and, and much of the student body and he lamented that what, what he saw as the end result of an empty humanistic philosophy, moral weakness and sin-ruined lives. And so during his first semester at Yale, he started something that would transform campus life. Uh, one of his friends described how it started. It was well on the first term when Bill and I began to pray together. I want you to know good things happen when people start to pray. Good things happen when people start to pray. They began to pray together in the morning before breakfast, and he says, I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I, I'm pretty confident it had to originate with William. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after that, a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture, and, and the way that William handled uh, Scripture was so helpful to us. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promises with insurance. Now listen to this. His small group prayer gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus, and by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. And by the time he was a senior, get this, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in these groups. 1,000 of 1,300 were meeting in these small groups. William felt called to missions, though, so he was always on this mission. He didn't wait to graduate. He was a man with a purpose, but all the meanwhile preparing to be a missionary to the Muslim Kanzu people in China, and that was always his goal. He kept that focus always. Now, remember, he was a millionaire, and, and yet he came to realize always that he has to be about God's business. He wasn't going to waste time in the pursuit of amusement. He was after God's business. And after graduating from Yale, Borden turned down some really high-paying jobs. And at this, this point in his life, it had been reported that, that William wrote two more words in his Bible, no retreats. No retreats. And William Borden went on to graduate work, or went on to graduate, and then he went to Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed off for China because he had hoped to work with the Chinese Muslims. He went first to Egypt, though, because he had to study Arabic. And while he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death got back to the U.S., the story carried by nearly every single American newspaper. This was a big deal. This is what it said. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Now, when we hear this, we think, man, was, was his life a waste? How could this happen? 25 years old. Somebody with so much potential, and yet he dies at 25 years old. I want, you, I want to answer the question if, you, if you're asking, it was, what a waste. I want to say, not really, not from God's perspective. Because as the story has it, prior to his death, 
William Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible when he realized the disease that he had got. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he wrote, no regrets. No regrets. William Borden knew what was going to happen to him, and he was able to write, no regrets. You see, following Jesus does something to you. It gives your life purpose. And one of the outworkings of the gospel is that it will inevitably reorder your value system. And and that's what we're seeing and we're studying here in the book of Acts, and today specifically in the life of a very ordinary man by the name of Stephen. He realized the value of the gospel, and he was willing to risk everything, everything to preach it. And it's because of common guys like Stephen. This is what I really want you to get. It's because of common guys like Stephen, much more than through the apostles, that the early church grew. I love Acts as a pastor because it shows that God wants to use everybody. So today we're going to pick up again in the middle of a sermon preached by a man who lived a short life, but a life that had tremendous, tremendous impact. We're in Acts 7, and we're picking up again in verse 37. And just so you know the impact that William Borden had was not just that people saw, wow, what commitment, what dedication. William Borden's death sparked a movement, uh, a missionary movement that ended up sending uh, thousands of missionaries overseas, uh, and it's still impacting people like me who sat in Central Bible College and studied the works of William Borden, I think in almost every single one of my missiology classes. William Borden's life continues and continues to touch to touch people's life. So again, was his life a waste? Absolutely not. We're going to see right here, was Stephen's life a waste? Because this poor guy just got a leadership position in the church. He's preaching his first sermon, and it's going to end with his death. So last week, we learned through Stephen's message that God's still calling people, God's still protecting his people, and God is still giving purpose to the pain that some of us sometimes go through in this life. Now, in verse 37 through 43 we see that God still speaks to his people. God still speaks to his people, all right? Moses promised that after him would come another prophet. And, and he warned Israel that they needed to listen to this coming prophet. But just like Israel, who rejected Moses, they were also rejecting Jesus, who the prophet Moses was talking about. And I want you to see how God still speaks through his law to his people, Okay? Stephen's pretty much saying this, hey, you religious leaders, you're accusing me of undermining the law of God, so I'm going to answer this accusation. Here's exactly what I believe about the law. I believe that God hasn't left us. I believe that God still speaks to his people, and he's speaking to his people through the living oracles of God. That's what verse 38 says. So if you're okay with writing in your Bible, here's what I want you to do. You need to underline or circle those two words, living oracles, You're okay with doing that. Or you can just take notes. And by the way, we are on the Bible app now. So if you download the Bible app and you're on the church app, you can get our notes right there as you read read along with Scripture. Because here's what Stephen is really saying. He's saying, hey, you religious leaders, you're teaching a set of rules. You're teaching do this, don't do that in order to go to heaven. The law was just simply for you to hear from God and to realize how far you and I are from the, the kind of perfect life that God expects us to live. The, the law was never meant to accomplish uh, salvation. Never. In fact, what Stephen is saying is you're accusing me of undermining the law, and I'm going to tell you I believe in the law. In fact, I believe that it's living, it's active, and God is still speaking to people today through the law. Friends, God still speaks. You know, we have a saying here at New Heights Church, if you want to hear a word from God, then you need to open the word of God. <laughs> Say it again. If you want to hear from God, then you need to open the word of God. When we read the scriptures, we're not just reading a record of what God has said in the past. God actively speaks to us in the here and now through the words of this amazing Bible. The writer of Hebrews makes this point really clear when he quotes the Old Testament passages. And he presents them not not as something God said to his people sometime in the past, but as something God is currently saying to his people now. He writes that the word of God is living and active. It's exposing our shallow beliefs and our hidden motives. This this word is very personal. Now listen, this is important. You and I hear the voice of God speaking to us. 
unmistakably, authoritatively, and personally when we read, hear, study, and meditate on the scriptures. But many of us, we want something more. I I see this in the church all the time. We want something more. We want something different. We read the scriptures and witness God speaking to individuals in amazing ways throughout the history of redemption. Job, Job heard God speaking from the whirlwind. Moses heard him calling from the fiery bush. Samuel heard him calling uh, in the dark. David heard him speak through the prophet Nathan. Isaiah felt the burning coal and heard assurance that his guilt was taken away and sin atoned for. Saul and those that were traveling with him on the road to Damascus heard Jesus asking, why Saul, are you persecuting me? Prophets and teachers at Antioch heard the Holy Spirit tell them to set apart Barnabas and and send out Saul. John felt the glorified Jesus touch him and heard his assurance that he didn't have to be afraid. Now I believe that if we're genuine believers and we genuinely long and yearn for God to speak to us, We want to hear from God. We genuinely uh, long for a personal word from God, a supernatural experience with God. But what's so sad, and hear me out, what's so sad is that sometimes we fail to grasp that as we read and we study and we hear the word of God taught and preached, it is a personal word from God. Because, listen, because the scriptures are living and active God's speaking to us through them is a personal, supernatural experience. God has spoken, and listen to me, God has spoken so many times. I want to tell believers to stop seeking some new revelation and start seeking illumination. Can I say that again? I don't want to, I don't want to be offensive, but I want you to hear this. So many times I want to tell believers to stop seeking some new revelation and start seeking illumination. When I was a youth pastor, my heart was broken because I would get students so many times who had this false understanding of how God speaks. And, and maybe sometimes our culture was mixing in with doctrine, and that's, that's maybe why. But they would come to the altar, and they would want God to speak to them on a certain situation that they're facing in life when God had already spoken. There are many times that I would, I would get people, young, young adults coming, I don't know if I should marry this person. They're not a believer. So can you just pray with me that God would lead me and guide me? Uh, he's already spoken. He has spoken through his word. You know, so, so many times we're looking for this special revelation or we're wanting God to speak to us and tell us something new that's not in the Bible so we have this new revelation. God has spoken to you personally through his word. Through the scriptures, we hear God teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. The word of God transforms us by renewing our minds so that we can think more like him and less like the world. Instead of needing God to dictate to us what to do, we become increasingly able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what Paul teaches in Romans, right? Listen to what John Piper, how he describes his own experience of hearing God speak to him through the Bible. I love this. Listen to this. He says, God talks to me no other way, but don't get this wrong. He talks to me very personally. I open my Bible in the morning to meet my friend, my savior, my creator, my sustainer. I meet him him and he talks to me. I'm not denying providence, not denying circumstances, not denying people. I'm just saying that the only authoritative communion I have with God with any certainty comes through the words of this book. It's powerful. And listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. Now we're going to go back a little bit, but listen to what he said. He goes, I know by experience that impressions being made with great power and upon the minds of true saints, yea, eminent saints, and presently after, yea, in the midst of extraordinary exercises of grace and sweet communion with God, and attended with texts of scripture strongly impressed on the mind, are no sure signs of there being revelations from heaven. For I have known such impressions to fail and prove vain. Why am I getting, why, why am I hanging on this? Why am I hanging out right here? Because I, why, why Pastor Justice, are you so passionate about this? Well, because there are certain movements today in which people give divine authority to thoughts motivated by spiritual stimulation as if they were received directly from God. 
This happens in the church. And as your pastor, as, as your shepherd, I've got to protect the flock. I've got to make sure you know God's word. I can't, I mean, I, if you're only reading God's word when I'm preaching it on Sunday, there's a problem. You got to know his word. You got to be in his word. There are a lot of false teaching going on right now. There's a lot of, and you can't just let experience trump God's word. Do you understand that? You can't let something, whatever is happening, and you're like, man, this is amazing. It better line up with God's word. Some of these movements right now going on tend to validate their doctrine and their theology based on their spiritual experience and, and emotion instead of God's word. And, and the danger, and I've talked to, I've had friends who before have gotten real caught up in different things going on. And I remember one conversation I had with a friend where I said, where, where can, you just, can you explain to me what you're experiencing in the Bible? He said, Justin, this goes beyond the Bible. I said, well, then we're no different than Mormons. We're no different than, than the other religious groups that have gotten away from God's word. And we're going to allow our spiritual experience to shape and form our doctrine and our theology. You got to be careful. Church, listen to me. Be, be careful. I want you to remember God is not the only spirit that's active in this world. The devil can stir our hearts. He can stir our minds. It says that in John chapter 13, verse 2. In Mark chapter 8, 31 through 33, we learn that the devil's capable of doing that as well. He can give spiritual experience in someone's life too, and he's going to use it to foster false belief, and false belief can blind people from God's truth. And I'm not saying that any type of experience you have is from the devil, because God does speak to us through our experiences. He does. Some of my, the most powerful moments in my spiritual life were at, at an altar where the Holy Spirit touched my life. I absolutely, 100% believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and he leads us to do things, but the Holy Spirit will never go against the book he inspired. He'll never go against the book he inspired. So now some may be thinking, Pastor Justin, you're not allowing any room for the Holy Spirit to speak to his people. And I want to be really clear today that I'm not doing that. No, in fact, I believe that the Holy Spirit still does speak to his people, and it's crucial that his people are listening. I won't put God, here's the thing, though, I will not put God in a box that he doesn't put himself in. And what I mean is that I don't see anywhere in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit's going to stop speaking to followers of Jesus. The New Testament paints a picture of a community where people not only heard from God through scripture, prayer, and sacraments, but also through prophecy, other languages, words of wisdom and knowledge, and so on. We see this. And sometimes people were worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said something. Sometimes they were trying to resolve a dispute, and it seemed good for the Holy Spirit to do this or to do that or to come to a particular conclusion. Sometimes they were on a mission, and the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go one way and sent them another way. Angels appeared regularly. Ordinary people, not just apostles, prophesied. Some predicted global events before they happened. Others spoke in earthly languages that they had never learned. Several had visions. And all of this happened, Peter explained, on the day of Pentecost because this sort of thing would happen in the last days. And, and just FYI, the last days, that's the time between the ascension and the return of Christ. So we're, we're just as much living in the last days than Peter was living in the last days. Right? God is the one who speaks, so when his spirit is poured out, everyone starts hearing from God. And so from the point of view of Acts, this is normal Christianity. It is. Hearing from God about things, even when major decisions or people's lives are in the balance, and, and this was very much the norm. Today, some, some would say, man, this stuff is, uh, we call these people charismatic loonies, charismatic crazies. But all throughout the New Testament, we see a church that's praying together and God speaks to them. A missionary decision has to be made. And a man pops up in a vision and sends Paul and Silas to Greece. Prophets predict famines and, and the capture of their leaders. The gifts of the Spirit completely changes the decision-making process in the early church. It did. The start of Acts, everyone's drawing lots to make decisions. But after Pentecost, nobody is. Nobody is. Now rolling God's dice, it's been replaced by hearing God's voice. So now, this is where it can get confusing for the church, and people today start throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So listen to your pastor for a minute. If we're, if we're still in the last days, and if our lives and our churches today are supposed to look like the book of Acts, with people prophesying, seeing visions, 
so on, then, then what checks and balances are in place to stop it from going wrong? Because what can we do to make sure that we're hearing from God and not making stuff up or allowing experience to override God's word? I want to quote, I, I want to read, there's four things, and I got this from Andrew Wilson's article, How to Hear from God, four safe, five safeguards for us, okay? First, we can check what we're hearing against what the Holy Spirit has revealed in Scripture. If you're taking notes, write that down. If someone feels led to leave his wife and to run off with someone else, then we know he's been deceived simply because the Spirit won't contradict what he said in the Bible. Okay? And I get this all the time. I'm telling you, as a pastor, I'm brokenhearted that, they all, that sometimes when we want something, we'll throw out the God card. Oh, I feel led to do this. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. This is the person I'm supposed to be with. No. No, the person you're supposed to be with is the person you said I do to. The Holy Spirit's not going to contradict what he's already said. Second, here it is, we can check it against what we know of Jesus. All right, so is it arrogant? Is it lustful? Is it greedy? Is it divisive? Then it's not the word of God. You'd be amazed at how many bogus words from God can be debunked simply by running them through these two filters, these first two. Now, I get this too sometimes as a pastor. Somebody will come up to me and say, Pastor, I got a word. Got a word from God. Honestly, sometimes I... It's like my spider senses just start going, spidey senses go crazy. I get nervous. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But sometimes I'll have people come and they'll tell me this is from God. God wants you to do this. And it's, it's all about causing division. It's hurting somebody's name and reputation. And I can tell you right now, it's not, I'm sorry. That's just, that's, that goes against what we know of Jesus. Okay, third, so we can check it with what we're hearing the Holy Spirit has revealed in Scripture. Check it against what we know of Jesus. Third, talk to leaders about it. Now, leaders are certainly not infallible, I'll tell you that. But the New Testament describes them as those who guide and teach the church. Paul heard from God pretty clearly, but he still talked a lot about the responsibilities of leaders to correct those who were talking rubbish. If you're a leader, his instructions are pretty simple. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to the good. All right? Third. So fourth, here it is. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 about prophesying being weighed or judged by the church. This means the local church together needs to exercise discernment and wisdom when people prophesy. Is this person trustworthy? Is this word from God? And if it is, how weighty is it? All right? And fifth, fifth, we simply consider the effect or the fruit of what we think God is saying. Now listen, both Moses and Paul offered us some pretty good uh, advice when it comes to this. Does the word cause people to rebel against God and serve idols? then it's not from God. Does it fail to come true, then it's not from God. I can't tell you how many times I have people come in to the church and they'll show me a YouTube prophecy that was made by someone and, and then a few weeks later it comes out that it's not wrong and then they'll come back into my office again with another YouTube video that he came out with again to talk about why he was wrong in the first one and how he's got it right this time. Look, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> Okay, does it, cause, does it cause people to see Jesus as Lord? Then it's from the Holy Spirit. Does it edify Christians and cause unbelievers to worship God? Then it's from the Holy Spirit. When God speaks, it's gonna come true. It's gonna glorify Jesus. It's gonna prompt worship. It's gonna encourage people. It's gonna build up the church and not tear it down. And if those things aren't happening, it's not from God. And tell you what, the Holy Spirit does not... It's not about putting fear in our hearts. We walk every day trembling and we're afraid to death of what might happen here on this earth. Okay? He finishes with, in this article, he finishes with quoting this uh, Derek Rishmawi. And he says this, abuse does not take away use. I like that. In fact, I wrote it down and I put it on my bookshelf by all of my Acts books. (laughs) Abuse does not take away use. Man, I think it's safe to say that, that there are probably several of us in here this morning that have all kinds of examples where we experience weird, crazy nonsense. 
Okay, I, I am not ashamed to be Pentecostal. I absolutely believe it. I've done some of my education, just so you know, not just at uh, Assemblies of God Pentecostal schools, but I've done quite a bit of education at Southern Baptist schools. And so I feel like I've had a good mix when it comes, a good broad range of different uh, theologies that I've learned, uh, sat under some of the best professors, and, and just been able to learn and glean from them. My biggest teacher, obviously, is the Bible, Right? <laughs> And so I'm not ashamed to be Pentecostal, to say I absolutely am 100% Pentecostal. I believe that the gifts did not stop then, that they are for today, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is moving. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe in all of that stuff, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Now, I, and, and I'm, not, I'm not embarrassed to tell you this, because I grew up Pentecostal. I'm fifth-generation Pentecostal pastor. I'm not even embarrassed to say this, that, boy, has there been a lot of abuse. Wow. Even today, I just, I'm humiliated with some of the stuff that is, that's going out that's within our ranks. I'm just shocked by it. But despite those crazy examples, we need to remember that the New Testament church is a spirit-filled, prophetic, voice of God, hearing people, and we get to be a part of it. God speaks and we hear. What a privilege. Amen? So Stephen hammers home this powerful point that God still speaks to his people. And then he moves on to his next point. We see this in verse 44 through 50. God dwells with his people. Stephen answers the last charge next. He says, they accuse him of undermining the temple. So Stephen's going to answer that, this charge for them. And in the next statement, he says, hey, you're, church, you're not alone. You're not you're not on your own because God is with you to the point that he dwells inside of you. God's dwelling with his people. And I don't want you to miss the significance. In, in the ESV text, it says the tent of witnesses. In most other texts, it's, it, text, it says the word tabernacle. And I don't want you to miss the significance of the word tabernacle, okay? That word means that God made a conscious decision to dwell on earth with people. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to miss how serious and significant this is because since God is perfect and he's holy, God can't be around imperfect, unholy people. And I'm here to tell you that there is nobody in this room that's holy. We are all imperfect. And if you're looking for a perfect church, well, tell me when you find it. (laughs) No church is perfect. No, no, nobody's perfect. Yet, Yet God gives his people this ability to sacrifice and ask God for forgiveness. And then God says, I'm going to dwell with you. So I will come. I will have a tent on earth. This is going back to the Old Testament. Remember, Stephen's teaching a historical lesson here. I'm going to come and I'll have a tent on earth where you can meet with me and I can come meet with you. That's what the word tabernacle means. Literally a place or the tent of God. Stephen says, you're accusing me of speaking against this temple, but I'm going to remind you guys of something. Jesus, uh, something that Jesus had just taught a foreign woman not that long ago. He said that God doesn't dwell in a specific place on earth anymore. Back in ancient Israel, like I said, you had to go to Jerusalem to a specific hilltop or into a specific building. But that's not how God meets with his people anymore. Now because of the Holy Spirit... God moves in and takes up residence inside you. This is one of the most powerful doctrines in all the Bible. Now he dwells in you. He dwells inside of you. In fact, later on, the New Testament says it this way. Your body becomes a dwelling place or a temple of the Lord if you know Jesus Christ personally. Stephen's answering every charge that's brought against him. He's saying to them, look, Abraham was a great man, but he's not the son of God. Moses was a big deal, but he's not the son of God. The law, the temple, all of it really important, but they're not as important as the son of God. And here's what's amazing. Moses, he sought, I mean, he, he yearned to look upon the glory of God, and he was warned by God himself not to look. But you and I, we have the privilege of looking upon the face of the word of God, upon Jesus, by faith through his word. And later one day, by sight, we're going to see the face of Jesus. His glory will be displayed. Do you know what glory means weight in, in the literal Hebrew? Many Christians today, they're into what I would call uh, Christian light. You know, when we, Liz and I lived overseas, they don't call it uh, Diet Coke. They call it Coke light. Coca-Cola light, Pepsi light. Uh, give me, it, it, sometimes Christians want Jesus light. Give me a little, little Jesus, just not enough to, or give me a little Jesus, enough to make me happy. But here's the deal. God 
thunders into our lives in the flesh and says that we behold him in the glory of God, full of grace and truth. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then Stephen transitions again in verse 51, and this is his last strong point, is God stands with his people. He stands with his people. See, this, this part of the sermon is really important because what Stephen says next is going to cost him his life. Stephen basically says, can I remind you of something? God dwells inside his people. God stands with his people. Here's what I want you to take away from Stephen's sermon today. When you stand with Jesus, Jesus stands with you. When you stand with Jesus, Jesus stands with you. Stephen's about to make a stand, and this is going to cost him his life. This is the first Christian martyr recorded for us in history. This brother just went from being on the stand, hearing the accusations of the religious leaders, to being the guy who's now accusing the religious leaders. The fingers that they were pointing at him, he's now pointing at them and saying, you are the very men who murdered an innocent man, not just an innocent man, you murdered the son of God. Stephen is not putting all the blame on the Jewish people here. He's simply saying that it was, it was their sin. It's our sin that put him on the cross too. So don't put words in Stephen's mouth. He was, not, he was saying it's the sin of the world and he's saying the reason why you did it is because you don't understand the law. You don't understand the temple. You don't understand Moses because your hearts are far from God. Your ears can't hear what the Bible teaches. Look, there are people who can sit in the church for 30, 40 years and still not hear what God is trying to teach. They're still not getting the message. Church is not just a religion. You understand this? Your relationship with Jesus is not just some religion. It's not just a set of do's and don'ts. You can sit in church your entire life and still miss it. And if, if there's any reason or any confusion about why they would act the way that they're acting, he says it next, and I think it's in verse 54. He gives an answer, and I want to quote before I go into this. this uh, uh, one of my all-time favorite preachers, Adrian Rogers, he once said this, persecution doesn't make martyrs. Persecution reveals who really has a martyr's faith. I like that. I'll, I'll say it again. Persecution doesn't make martyrs. Persecution reveals who really has a martyr's faith. Remember I, I told you last week that as we see the pressure come on Stephen, the real Stephen comes out. I learned this as a missionary. Our, our area directors used to tell this to us, and I would hate it, but he would say, you're going to come overseas and you're going to experience pressure like you've never experienced before. You're going to be in a new culture. You're going to be learning a new language. You're going to be trying to figure out how to raise your kids. Your marriage is going to come under attack. Everything is going to feel like your world's falling apart. And it usually takes anywhere from three to six months before somebody's ready to quit and go back home. So he said, a lot of times at six months, we call it psychotic, crazy missionary syndrome. <laughs> and I said, no way, that doesn't happen. Oh, my word, six months in, brand new missionaries, they're crazy. They're nuts, they're, including myself at six months. As the pressure comes on you, the real you comes out. And so I remember that was something that area director said over and over and over. I said, God, if I'm going to get squeezed, I want you coming out. Watch you coming out. Here we see this. You see, Stephen was on trial where most of us would be so intimidated that we wouldn't even have the words to say, but his, this bold guy goes into the offensive. And as a result, all of these religious leaders start to pass judgment. They're immediate, they immediately take him out, they sentence him to death, and they immediately begin to murder him. Murder. And now Stephen's following in the exact same footprints of Jesus when Stephen's being murdered for his faith. But the part of this story that gets me the most is that Stephen's thoughts are of the very people that are murdering him. The ones throwing the stones at him. He's broken over the consequences of their actions. I don't think I could do that. I'm just going to be honest. If somebody was stoning me, I'm not sure I'd be like, Lord, I'm worried about their spiritual life. I'd be praying, God, shatter their teeth right now. Send a tornado, take them up. Protect me, God. And here Stephen is just broken over the consequences of their actions. He is thinking about them and only them. 
Stephen looks up to heaven and God parts the heavens and Stephen's able to see something in heaven. And this may be something he had never witnessed before. God allows him for a moment to see Jesus Christ get up off of his throne and Stephen becomes aware of his presence. How many of you guys know Jesus standing with us is everything? It's everything. I I love hearing the stories of some of the old missionaries. Um, Man, did I just, yeah, yeah. I was going to share a story my mom has shared, but then I, I can't because I just opened it up with the old missionaries. Mom, if you're listening, you're not, you're not old. You're, you're not old. i talking about some of the old timers before us where we read the stories. But, you know, even my grandparents would talk about stories and uh, about God's presence. I've told you my grandma or my grandpa was in a concentration camp for an entire year of his life. And I would hear story after story after story about being comforted in horrible times because they would experience the presence and the peace of God. Even in the midst of hell. Even in the midst of a concentration camp, even in the midst of things happening to them that should have never happened, he said, I could still feel the presence of God with us. It's kind of what Stephen's saying. Stephen took a stand for God, and God stood with Stephen. Right? And I think there's more, more to this than Jesus just applauding him and cheering him on. Psalms 91 says it all. God sits on the throne in heaven, and God's son sits at his right hand. Get this now and don't miss it. Stephen's no longer looking at these men who have life in his power, or his life in their power. Stephen now looks to the one who judges them, and he sees the righteous judge get up off of his throne, stand in applause, and pass judgment on what Stephen's doing. Stephen is seeing the reward of his faith. He got the benefit of knowing that God's really, really totally aware of all that's going on. You and I today, we get the benefit of knowing that God is totally aware of what is going on in our life. And that's powerful. That's perspective. Do you understand that? When you are going through a difficult time, do you understand that God is not taken by surprise? He knows it. He knows that it's going on. He knows it's happening. But you get the benefit of knowing that God is aware of it all. He's aware, and while Stephen's being murdered, he knows his Savior, Jesus, is standing at the right hand of the Father, advocating on his behalf. Now, folks, listen to me. Stephen is in the midst of this life-or-death ordeal, and he's no longer thinking of himself. He's thinking of them. And then the Bible does something very unusual. In fact, if you were to read it uh, casually, you would say, wait a minute. (laughs) Now, this really doesn't make any sense. Why do we hear about a guy by the name of Saul? At the end of this passage, when for two chapters we've been hearing all about Stephen. Why all of a sudden, at the end of this chapter, does this name get thrown out? I think what the Bible's trying to tell us is that there was a guy in the crowd that day who passed judgment and made it possible for Stephen to be murdered. That man's name was Saul, and, and that man Saul never forgot what he saw that day. Never. He never forgot what he heard from Stephen when those rocks were hitting him and he was literally dying in front of him. Saul never forgot what happened. And very quickly, the blood of Stephen, the first martyr, will become the seed of Saul's faith. That is one of the most powerful statements in all of Acts. And if if you just read it casually, you'll read right over it. The blood of Stephen, the very first martyr of the faith, became the seed of Saul's faith. And I think for the rest of Saul's life, he replays this scene over and over and over again. What kind of man would stand up and pray for the forgiveness of the very people that are murdering him? Do you not see that Stephen's preaching even in his death? You know, I love the story of David Wilkerson. I do. I love, I love that an old farm boy from Pennsylvania could get called to go into New York City and start Teen Challenge. I love his story so much, but I love that part, the, the Run, Nikki, Run, or whatever that book was that was written. I read it as a little kid, and the part that always stood up to me was when they came up with uh, the knife, and they were, they were going to hurt David Wilkerson. He said, you could cut me up in 100 pieces, or whatever he said, and every little piece is going to say, Jesus loves you. Think about that for a moment. Stephen is preaching the best message of his life, and at this point, he's no longer using words. He closed his eyes to see the Lord Jesus face to face, to feel his embrace, and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't say, and it all got better. 
doesn't say, Steve, I mean, Stephen dies. He dies. This is the end of his life. Does not say, and when Jesus, when he, Jesus revealed himself to Stephen, he came down and he rescued Stephen. Doesn't say it got all better. Doesn't say and they lived happily ever after. Doesn't say and 3,000 were added to their number and baptized. Not in this text. <laughs> Stephen dies. There's no, no music playing on in the back. It's not like a full house episode. Right, where Danny's going to fix everything for his three daughters, doesn't end good. And please keep this in mind. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you feel isolated. Maybe you feel like you're in over your head. Maybe you feel like you're just far from God or it's been a long time since, you, since you've even felt God's touch. And if that's the case, I need you to learn from Stephen today. God is big enough to protect you even if he chooses not to. God loves you enough that he's going to go right with you in the midst of those difficult, difficult circumstances. And a really good book, just if, if you guys are readers, a really good book is written by Timothy Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, one of the greatest books I've ever read. If you're going through something really difficult and you're just struggling to see where God is in all of this, I would suggest that book, Timothy Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. There's one thing I want to close with here. Did you know the name Stephen means crown in Greek? In Greece, crowns were given to those who overcame. To those who overcame. And don't miss this today. Stephen overcame the world. Not by experiencing what we would typically, typically call blessing, but by dying faithful to Jesus with his eyes fixed upon the risen Christ. You and I are gonna overcome the world, not by experiencing what we would call a typical blessing, but by dying faithful to Jesus with our eyes fixed upon the risen Christ. And God used his death for, for more than he had ever dreamed of because from his death, like I said, came the greatest evangelist who would ever live. Saul would become the apostle Paul and he opened up Christianity to the entire world. You and I are here today because of the Apostle Paul's efforts and his work. We are here in America, across the ocean, worshiping God on Sunday because the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest missionaries ever. God saves the world through your suffering and even in the midst of death. You want to overcome the world? Here's what I would say. Serve. Confess that it's not about you and submit to obedience no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost. And many of you are being called by God. Many of you right now, you're being called to glorify him in your hour of trial. Some of you are facing horrible circumstances and God is saying, I want to use these circumstances. I want to be glorified even in this. Glorify Jesus even in your hour of trial. For some of you, it's a physical, emotional affliction. And you just got to pray it out. Jesus, I see you standing and I trust you. Help me to give glory to you no matter what happens. And I know that is a hard thing to tell people who are suffering. I know that. And I know there are people in, these, in this, this auditorium today who are suffering way more than I have ever suffered. And I'm telling you, you got to get to that place where you can give this to Jesus. Some of you have been put in situations where it, it's costly to obey. Some of you are in a workplace where maybe it's, you're being pushed to compromise your standards and Jesus is saying, I want to be glorified. I want to be glorified in your life. Maybe some of you students in school suffering the loss of reputation that comes from standing on what God says. I want you to know they will throw stones. Maybe not literal, not, not physical stones, but they'll throw verbal ones. And I'm telling you, they'll sting and they'll hurt. But you got to say, Jesus, you're worth it. Jesus, you're worth it. For others, God's called you to something sacrificial or uncomfortable, to serve in some ministry of the church that makes you uncomfortable, to make a difficult financial sacrifice. Maybe it's to go overseas on a missions trip or maybe even to move there permanently. God wins the world. And here's what we need to remember. God wins the world through people who say, it's not about me and Jesus is worth it. And they pick up the, the towel and they serve no matter what the cost is. Can you pray that? That's what I want to end with today. That's, how, that's what I want to pray. I know that's, that's an intense prayer, isn't it? But I am so excited that God has called Liz and I back to America to pastor a church in America at this, in, at this time. Because I believe that America needs Jesus more than ever. More than ever. 
I've got to serve in some of the most neediest places. Man, in, in the country of India and in Thailand, we're talking millions and millions who don't know Jesus. But I'm telling you, when I would come back, I'm seeing something going on in my own country where I see it is, we have this incredible opportunity to show the world what they're searching for. To show America. America's desperately searching. Jesus wants to move. So here's what I'm going to ask. I told you I did not come to pastor just a regular church and do Sunday morning service and we'll get the programs up and running and we'll, we'll bring health. I want to pastor a movement, a movement of people that want to serve. Because here's the thing. I already knew this when God called me into ministry. It's not about me. <laughs> if it was, then God's in a lot of trouble. I have always been honest with the church. I told the board exactly what they're getting with me. You're not getting anything special. I mean, I'll get up and I'll preach God's word. But one thing I can promise you is that I will get on my knees and I will seek what God wants for this church and I'll be bold enough to take those steps. I can make that promise. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. I can't do it without a group of people who are gonna be a part of the movement. If you're here today, you're not here by accident. God brought you to this church. God has a plan for you. God wants you to serve. God wants you to get involved. This church was meant just for so much more than just to be the big church off Dixie Highway. It's the big building off Dixie Highway. No, we're, we're about to be a movement. And I'm telling you, I'm seeing it happen already in every single one of our ministry departments. We are seeing growth. And I'm not even talking numerical right now. I'm talking about life transformation, people getting it, getting their purpose and wanting to jump in and give. And so God, we pray that right now. Lord, would you, would you allow us to come and offer our lives to you? It's not about us. Can we pray that today? It is not about me. It's not about Pastor Justin. It's not about the worship team. It's not about the board. It's not about any one individual in this church. It's about you. Our lives are supposed to reflect your glory. God, would you send your Holy Spirit on this spiritual community? And would you shake us? Would you give us a willingness to serve? to do whatever it takes to bring you glory. And I pray for supernatural strength right now for all of those who are going through difficult times. God, no matter what it is, if it's a strained relationship, if it's a marriage that they don't think can work, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's a sickness, if it's cancer, if it's whatever it is, I pray, God, that today, instead of, instead of just for asking relief from the pain, that they would say, God, it's not about me, so... I give my life to you. I give even this circumstance and this situation to you. How can you be glorified through it? God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to work in our hearts and our minds and that perspectives would be changed today. That you would be glorified. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone says, 